Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason, where we get together every week and discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. We keep it interesting. We keep it enlightening. We keep it informative. We keep it insightful. We've got a great guest today. His name's Jared McDaniel. You may or may not know Jared McDaniel. He's a Texoma, Oklahoma farmer, rancher, business-minded guy, father of six kids. How he has time for anything else, God only knows. He's going to join me today to talk about issues as he sees it from his perspective in the business of agriculture. Jared's also a, a podcast host like me. He has a podcast called Ag Uncensored, and he's got his fingers in a few other things. So he's an interesting guy. I, I've discovered him. I've kept up with some of his insights, and I thought he would be fun for you to talk to. So, Jared McDaniel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on here. I gave a little biographical on you. I forgot to say not only Texoma, Oklahoma is where you ranch and farm. You're an Oklahoma State graduate. I think you're the first Oklahoma State cowboy that I've had on my podcast. Well, after this, you'll probably have a lot more because people will be like, wow, if they teach them that way there, we need more of those guys. <laughs> uh, well, I'm a big fan of the land-grant institutions. I'm a Purdue guy myself, and I think well of the uh, the good school in Stillwater, Oklahoma. In fact, I've done it. Is. We have fun poking fun at the at the other university in Oklahoma. It's it, they're somewhere in Oklahoma City. I'm not sure exactly where, but I don't know. They like to wreck wagons and stuff in their football field. <laughs> I've heard of them. Okay, so uh, what did I miss? You're you're out there, and and for people that don't know, where's Texoma? Because there's a Texoma, Oklahoma, and a Texoma, Texas, and they're probably across the street from each other, aren't they? They literally are across the street. I'm out in the Panhandle. It's out in the very far western part of Oklahoma. We'd be north of Amarillo, about 90 or 100 miles. You know, part of the great kind of continuous southern high plains, western Kansas, eastern Colorado. I mean, it's kind of where, uh, you know, where people go to uh, lose their sanity, it seems like. When you watch the the big um, documentaries about the Dust Bowl, that's most people's uh, – when they think of where I live, they think of, oh, you're, you're where that Ken Burns went and talked to all those people from. <laughs> just, you know, we have the legacy of the Dust Bowl kind of back behind us from in the 30s. Well, the Dust Bowl impacted a lot bigger area than just Guyman, Oklahoma and Texoma, Oklahoma. It was devastating for a lot of folks. I still use it as an example in my speeches to agricultural audiences as this very illustration that you can appreciate also that when people try and pretend that somehow modern agriculture is bad and things were wholesome and beautiful at some point in our history, because there's this suburban image that today, oh, glyphosate, Monsanto, oh, factory farm. But in the old days, it was wholesome. I say, well, when was this wholesome time? Was it mm -hmm. the, in the 50s? <laughs> you know, because everybody has this idea that the 50s were some amazingly beautiful, wholesome time, not just in agriculture, but in America. I mean, there's 57 Chevys and their, their saddle shoes and kicked them off and sock hopped and listened to wonderful music. I'm like, yeah, you know, it really wasn't like that. It wasn't? I said, uh, well, what about the black kids? Remember, they weren't allowed to be at the sock hop. Uh, what about the kids with polio? Wasn't really very fun for them to go to the sock hop either, was it? So this idea that everything was wholesome and beautiful in the old days, I extrapolate that to agriculture. I said, do you know what the old days of agriculture looked like? Here, here's a picture of the Dust Bowl. Uh, <laughs> oh, we're, we're the one that you like, you hold up as a shining example of what not to do. Well, the shining <laughs> example of what, what natural resource degradation looked like through, you bet. You bet. through, and also, 
you know, so nowadays we're using things like genetic engineering to make it so we don't have to go over the field 18 times. We don't have to use so much cultivation. So therefore, we're not putting our soil in harm's way. It's the most valuable resource we have, you and I, as agricultural people, as soil. So yeah, I use that as an example of let's not pretend that the old days were somehow wonderful or more righteous or more, uh, shall we say, good for the environment. In fact, they were worse. Yeah, I think a lot of that is just because people love nostalgia. People want to, uh, you know, connect with something from their childhood. And maybe, you know, when they were young growing up, it all seemed roses. I mean, I have that same when I was a kid and I used to ride on the tractor. I mean, that was the most fun I ever had farming was just like, oh, you just get to hang out and go do, you know, farming stuff. And then the reality sets in of, oh, you're actually have to run a business. And then <laughs> then it then it becomes, you know, the, the facade of here's this idealistic type thing that kind of falls by the wayside. So in the same vein, you have these people that have this nostalgia and they have this mental image of, of the idealistic, idealistic farming economy and everybody's great and everybody's wonderful. But yeah, if you were to go back and see, I bet those people were pretty miserable. I mean, honestly, if you think about it, they probably didn't like long to sit in their open cab tractor. They're probably like, this sucks, but I have to think that you think Jared, you said the funniest thing. I'll bet those people were miserable. My understanding when I've read about the Dust Bowl, babies sometimes died in their cribs because their their lungs and their nostrils would fill up with silt and sand and suffocate them. You think that yeah. that might be miserable? I would say that's pretty miserable. <laughs> yeah. You know what's funny is, is, is my family was one of those, and I don't know. You know I, I have these two questions. A, why did they stop here? And B, why did they stay? Because that's, I mean, they, they essentially stayed through the Dust Bowl, settled in 1906 and, and stuck it out. You know, as people left, they picked up land and, and with the advent of irrigation in the 50s, you know, turned it into what it is today. But you know, there wasn't a lot here to motivate. I don't know that I would have done it. I mean, I'm, be, I'm just being flat honest. I don't think I would have stopped and I don't know that I would have stayed. But, you know, that that just little streak of, of craziness it eventually ended up, you know, benefiting me in my life. But who knew that they didn't they couldn't foresee that. That was just I don't know. I can't figure out what motivated them to not want to be like everybody else and just get the hell out of here, you know. Speaking of what you do and what it set up for you, so you're a farmer, you're a rancher, you're you're out there in in the the western part of Oklahoma. Tell us about your operation. Yep, we run. Well, we farm and ranch, and that's kind of a you know. There's a, guys that do that, but a lot of people nowadays it seems like they're either farmers or ranchers. But uh, we raise corn, wheat, uh, hay for the cattle. You know, we'll raise about twelve to fifteen hundred acres of irrigated crops, mostly corn. I'll do some dry land or semi-irrigated corn or milo or wheat. Uh, we'll have and for, those, and for those listening, one good thing about the business of agriculture podcast, Jared, is I try to bring on folks from a variety. You know, we got potato people on, we got dairy people, we got food processor people. Try to bring on, I brought on my lawyer and said, tell these folks what they need to know about setting up their estate plan. So bring in a little bit of everybody. You're the yep. first person from that particular part of the world who also does farming and ranching. You just said the word Milo. What else do people need? Because some folks might say, I've never heard of Milo. No, Milo would be otherwise known as grain sorghum or, or it's close cousin. We've raised forage sorghum as a kind of an alternative to feed. So the difference between grain sorghum and forage sorghum is going to be plant size and tonnage because one of them is getting chopped up to be fed to cattle and the other one's going to be for the grain. And then where's the grain go? Bird seed is one usage. Also some of the foodies are getting into grain sorghum. Tell me about that. 
Well, and a lot of the grain sorghum goes to hogs. Uh, it actually does quite well as a feed ingredient for pigs. Uh, some for cattle, pretty much if people have access to corn or other feedstuffs, they'll go to that. But as a supplement, Milo will, or I keep saying, Milo, must, it must just be what we call it out here. That's what I've always called it. But grain sorghum will, will go into that rotation. But yeah, a lot of foo-foo stuff like bird seed and, uh, you know, the kind of the cosmetic end user type thing. I mean, it's great if you can break into that. Uh, out here there's probably so much produced that it there doesn't there actually there was a bird seed factory in a town not far away i take that back but i don't you know the how you can't sell there's only so many birds that people are feeding in their backyard nationwide you know it's just not i don't know that it can be scaled up to where it's a a realistic giant demand base for sorghum no but there is a there's a growing thing i've read an article about it that the foodie crowd because there's it doesn't present the gluten issue so some of the foodie crowd has decided that grain sorghum is one of the new superfoods it's right oh yeah well yeah and they're making beer out of it they're doing a lot of that kind of stuff i mean and you know you talk about the foodie crowd and i don't want to get on soapbox but it kind of turns into yes i mean the whole consumer's right that whole argument type thing. And maybe they are, but should the people who don't really know about raising food kind of be dictating the production of food? No, <laughs> not, kind of a not philosophical argument there. The, the dollars should trickle in based on if you said to yourself, hey, I'm a smart guy. I've got 160 acres I'm willing to experiment with over here. I'm going to yeah. do organic sorghum uh, fertilized with only bat guano and also uh, – <laughs> Uh, yep. blessed, blessed by a rabbi, and I'm going to advertise it that way because I think there's a market for that. And then if you make a killing at it, all the neighbors are going to drive by in their pickup truck, as farmers are akin to do, and say, oh, boy, he got sure got lucky. <laughs> and then they're going to say, well, maybe I should do that. <laughs> and then that's how the whole well, thing Well, I kind of I have a similar experience in that I'm trying to raise dryland corn out here in the desert. I mean, it's not typically done. I think you get in western Kansas, it's, it's a little more common. But, yeah, the first year I planted dryland corn and I adjusted populations, and I, I approached it from a scientific method of how am I going to do, you know, change the ecosystem to make it fit my environment and try to try to pull something off and it worked and it and that's very much the response that I got was oh well it rained and it worked once but that's not going to happen again <laughs> so I'm I'm not I'm not above trying to prove people wrong I mean I'm I'm just petty enough to <laughs> that's a steal a line from from Dwayne Faber he, he said he was just petty enough to try to make people like his jokes I'm just petty enough to try to try to prove that I can do something in a uh, in a in a part of the world that that uh, it can't be done or have been told it can't be done. So. And I'm, I'm just petty enough that when I do something that nobody else has the balls to do and it works, I get pissed off when they act like it was my luck and not just because I actually do. How to oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I just put that in the in the I'll show them again next year folder. So now, I've been self-employed for 25 years and I didn't come from much. So I have a little bit of this thing that says, uh, you know what, if it's working for me, maybe it's because I actually took some risks and, and learned along the way. And I skin my knees a lot. And, you know, that's the other way you skin your knees a lot. And some folks in agriculture are terrified to skin their knees. They'll act like they're all independent. They'll act like, oh, they just do whatever they want. They're rugged individuals. Like now, you know what? You bought the same exact equipment that the neighbor got. You are an opinion follower. You are not as ruggedly independent as you want to believe you are. So do you think that that's, is that truly like a, 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 is that kind of projection of the, of the independent farmer? Has that guy long since gone or is he still out there? Have you I, found him? I, I believe there are independent farmers, but I would say having been an observer of humanity since I was a kid, that's how I get into comedy. You know, to be a comedian, Jared, is to really be a professional observer. I've been observing oh, yeah. 
since I was a little boy riding around a pickup truck with my mom and dad going to the Farm Bureau co-op. Uh, I can tell you that this idea that all these farmers just do whatever they want and make up their own mind and all that, no, that's a bunch of bullshit. You know what they do? They watch obsessively what the neighbors do <laughs> about mm-hmm. 80%. Because you know what? Farmers are humans just like every other human. Of course. Uh, there's, there's the people out here that are trendsetters. There's the people out here that are truly early adopters. There's the people out here that are really going to be entrepreneurial and pull and, and come up with some new idea and say, I'm willing to try this. And they'll get judged by the coffee shop crowd. And then the coffee shop crowd, after seeing somebody else do it, will then call them all lucky. And then saying, oh, I'd have it too. So there's a lot of that. Farmers are humans and humans are. Uh, I really think it boils down to how much of a crap you give about what other people think. I mean, I guess I, I've, that, that ship sailed a long time ago I, in my world. I just kind of have, I've gotten, I've learned how to make mistakes and be happy about it. <laughs> well, good for you. The one thing is I'm, I mean, you and I are just about the same age. You're in your early forties. I'm in my late forties. So we're not that far off one another, but you no. know, it, it's uh, we used to make the crack. I still made the crack. But remember all the thing about uh, it was all the farm people who made sure that their uh, corn was cultivated and the side ditches were mowed by Sunday morning because uh, people were going to go out and look at it. And the thing is, they only thought that everybody drove by and judged them because that's what they did. <laughs> yeah, it's a projection of, of their own of their own insecurities on that on that moment. There you go. So talk to me about the beef business. Uh, you are a pretty big cow calf person. And I say pretty big, meaning it's my understanding the whole B- US beef herd, the average cow calf operator has like 42 animals or something like that. Because there's still a lot of small yeah. players in that. You've got 600 mama cows. Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, and, you know, really what I found is you, if you get over two or 300 and you have the capability, you know, a matter of scaling, it, it's actually very economic because it takes the same number of pickups to feed two, three, four, you know, that you don't really have to add a lot of equipment. It, the hurdle is going to be getting from zero to a hundred, you know, all the stuff it, cause it, you can push that same equipment. Uh, you can't push the land. You've got to have some way to come up with some feed stuff for them. You know, when I do that, I, I graze my corn stalks in the winter and then I'll grind and make a ration and then they'll, they'll be on grass probably a, a third, maybe a fourth of the year, you know, and I don't, I don't try to go grass only and that's all you're going to do because you just starve to death in my part of the world. And, and it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to go buy real estate at these levels. And, and I'm living somewhere where people would call relatively dirt cheap, you know, grassland for six, seven, $800 an acre, but you still can't make that cash flow. So to me, that's not even an option. You, you, you look at where you're, where you can go within your business environment. So. Yeah. And, and I appreciate you saying all that. First off, no, there's not been a $600 acre of ground sold uh, within a uh, hundred miles of my farm in probably a couple of decades, maybe multiple. But, but it, keep in mind, it takes 30 acres to run a cow year round. So that's, there, there's the, there's the trade-off. Yeah. And so 30 acres at uh, $18,000 and you amortize it, it starts to get still to where it's uh, not going to work out for you. Tell me about the beef business. Uh, what do I need to know? I mean, that's, that's where you, that's where you are. That's a pretty big, interesting operation. 600 of these uh, cows. Uh, yeah. What are they calving? Uh, are they calving right now? Actually, we just started. We, we, well, we should have be starting February 1st, but that means that we really get kicked off about the middle of January with some early ones. Some cold weather came through, stressed them a little bit. You know, they go ahead and they sometimes will domino a couple weeks early. So we're in the middle of calving. Um, 
I will keep everything all the way through yearlings, run them on wheat pasture or feed them out, kind of my own little grow setup. And then I've, I've taken them to the grid. I've went fed out, Wait, went all the way to the rail. To the person that's listening to this, that maybe is a potato person in New Brunswick or, uh, you know, a cranberry person in uh, Wisconsin. What, what did you just say right there? All right. So these, these cows are out there wandering around on your $600 an acre grassland. And then obviously depending on the time of year, season, moisture, et cetera, sometimes you're eating grass. Sometimes you're putting them on corn stalks. Sometimes you, sometimes out in that part of the world, they plant wheat let the wheat get up six or 12 inches and then turn them onto that. Am I right? Yep. Yep. We pretty much are, are we utilize whatever is the most economical feed stuff at the moment. And then also try to tie that back into our farming operation so we can still raise crops and uh, you know, just, it's really, and not to get too far off in the weeds, like a hippie type deal, but it's a holistic management system, you know, it's, but that's how we evolved. And that's how, that's how, you know, I'm kind of following some tradition and then I put my own spin on a lot of it, but you know, there's, there's a lot of old experience and knowledge that people learned how not to do it. And then they figured out how to do it. And you just kind of follow that roadmap and follow the rules and the common sense that is behind that. And then you can, you know, you can, a lot of times you'll find that the path already exists. You just have to learn how to keep it out of the ditches essentially. Yeah, I agree with you. And you take what nature gives you, takes what's going to work that year. And it may be very, when you do that thing where you put these animals out on wheat, that you've planted and now it's like six or eight inches tall. Do they eat it till it's down to the nubs or do they just eat it for a couple inches and then you still harvest the wheat? How's that work? Uh, well, in the years that we can do that, we, we, yeah, we let them, we'll typically graze till March or April, pull them off while it's still in a vegetative state before it gets into the reproductive cycle, the wheat. And then, uh, once, you know, you pull them off and then if you irrigated, you go ahead and hit it with some water or dry land, you hope it rains so that it can recover its, vegetative tissue in order to go ahead and get into the reproductive stages and make grain. So, you know, and that's a gamble, you know, if you graze it, you're going to hurt some of your grain potential. But part of the problem with wheat is it's worse. So it's not worth enough to really even take the risk on anymore. So wheat, wheat is kind of given way to cotton in our part of the world. You know, it's kind of being replaced slowly. And, uh, you know, like they say with wheat, they can grow it anywhere in the world. So there's a point in no time that we may not even be growing it out here anymore, other than for like a rotational or a, you know, supplemental forage crop. It, it's already been kind of backdoored into, into not much existence as it is. That's an interesting thing. I didn't know that. So you think the number of wheat acres is just going to continue to decline, at least in your part of the world, because the economics don't pencil up. Yep. And when you're trying to compete with cotton or if you can do milo or dryland corn or semi-irrigated, basically most every alternative crop beats it on paper and then beats it in reality because you, you just can't crank out the yield and it, and you can't do it consistently because you might have a banner wheat year going on and then late freeze, hail. There, there's so many variables that can take you out of it. It's just not worth the risk. I mean, especially when you're talking about a very small, small reward at the end of that, of that marathon. I mean, that's okay. just, I'm going to do something else with my time and money. So you, you, uh, you're going to get asked a question now, Jared, that uh, we already talked about farmers that sometimes a bunch of them believe that they're just these ruggedly individual that, uh, and they're actually they're, they're Johnny followers. There's another thing about farm people that we're going to have to admit. None of them have ever made any money ever. Just ask them. I mean, they're always just breaking even, right? So, <laughs> well, so. I think that, the, that we all forget about the times that we made really good money and upgraded all of our stuff to, to survive the, the bad times. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. I, I, what, my, what my opinion is right now is, you know, I can, 
it, and I'll decide my own personal operation. I could turn over a ton of money. I can, I can, you know, sink a ton of capital into the, into the crops, into the livestock. And at the end of the year, everybody gets paid. All the payments get made. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a break even venture at this point. And it's not a matter of, Oh, if I could just be this much more efficient, efficient, if I just had a bigger planner, it's not a question of if I can change X, Y, or Z now to then affect a, a better outcome. Like those, a lot of those choices are like, we're tapped out on, on efficiencies. We're tapped out on management stuff. I mean, yes, you can kind of make it work and really you're just kind of holding on until something breaks or, or there's a better market or a better yield. So, you know, you really, in my view, you kind of have these years that you just push the envelope just so you can get to the next one. So you have a better opportunity on a good return. You know, that's a gamble that you take. I mean, and then no one's forcing anybody to do this, but those are realities. Hang on, Jared. Now there's a lot of folks that uh, have been doing that for a long time. You know, it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. I just get through this year. And that's the old thing about the optimism of agriculture. And it's not just on the farming side. It's probably the people that are selling seed at one time. They're probably saying, Hey, we didn't do very well this year. Or the person that starts an equipment dealership or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. But uh, right now, right now your beef operation, Mm-hmm. Are cow calf operators making money? I think the cow calf operators are doing better than other segments, from what I can see. I think that the you know the feedlot deal they've pretty much whittled most of the margin out of that because you know what the cost of gain is, you know what the you know most animals going in going out. Uh, packers are making a killing; they've got a lot of leverage right now. You know there there's a lot of good money on the back end, and I, that's a big problem with the beef industry is that it is so fragmented. I think it's hard for the front end to to really take control and, and, and realistically ask and expect more money from the back end, you know, cause we don't, we don't sell hamburgers. We sell cattle. We sell cattle that somebody else takes and makes hamburgers. Yeah. I think that's something that has to be addressed in the future because I mean, as a cow calf guy, I make money because I'm utilizing crop resources. I'm just trying to pull inefficiencies back into my operation. And that's how I'm making most of my money. If I didn't have farming. It would be very hard to make, you know, a, a living where you only ran cattle. I think that you'd be talking about significantly more animals just to do that on a closing basis. But Okay. So uh, thanks for that input right there. And then by the way, I like that you, you gave that something that everybody can understand. Cause I'm always, always uh, one of these people on my podcast. I say, Hey, listen, you just use a terminology that's so specific to your industry that while I get it, our listener may not and the grain elevator guys on here and they're talking about basis trading and you know, the, the, <laughs> yeah, the, no, the, I, don't, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know any other way to do it. I just kind of just whatever pops in my head goes right out the mouth. You know, so. The near and the deferred, by the way, one of your podcasts I listened to on the, uh, on the ag uncensored, the guy was a cattle person talking to you who also knows cattle and was said something like, well, and then these here southern cattle they, they had a lot of ear on them mm-hmm. and i thought please and neither of you caught that 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 was so industry specific that nobody even understood that he was basically saying that they looked brahma right yep yeah so, no then typically you've got i think that's how uh, and I've, i'm gonna butcher this it's either boss indicus or boss taurus one of the you know the english breed versus the brahma type you know in other influences that come out typically cattle that come from the south have a little more ear that has to do with heat tolerance and the breeds that they use and yeah so and, anyway, and they're flat out southern cattle he was saying these are southern cattle which means yeah. they have brahman uh genetics and he was saying that that was probably a bad thing you weren't going to get fetch quite as much money because they didn't well, they're, they're ugly 
I mean, they're just ugly animals. <laughs> so answer me this. Uh, since we're talking about business, uh, beef people are making a little money. And you said something that's really valuable right there. This brings me to my next topic. You said that uh, the Packers are making the money because they know what the price is and they know what your cost of production is. And this mm-hmm. is the problem with this industry is that we will always figure out to end up working for free. <laughs> I point this out to my ag audiences. I'm like, why you, you all will produce like crazy until now you're producing for free. Uh, mm-hmm. You will commoditize the hell out of everything until now it's a matter of who can be the cheapest. I said, why don't you figure out a way to differentiate and take advantage of this customer base that wants to pay more money for it? But I say that it always goes back to, and I've been preaching this for a decade on my ag circuit, Stop being commodity-minded. You, you're a commodity producer. Now you also become commodity-minded. So that's what I want to just throw out there for you. You give me your interpretation. Mm, I, think it's, I think it sounds great. I like the idea of it. Um, the reality is getting, getting yourself in a position where you can take, like, let's just say one animal or two or 20 or 40, um, getting yourself into the position that you're going to specialty market that meat and let's just say a carcass. Okay. You, you know, the reality is you don't have the scale or the efficiencies to take that one animal and then convert it into, yes, you can get paid more for it. Of course you can. It's a specialty product. I can be like, Hey, this, this, this is a pure McDaniel animal and it's, and it's 100%. I didn't kick it. I didn't hot shot it. You know, I can tell people whatever they want to hear. I mean, you, you can feed them whatever story that makes them feel better about it. At the end of the day, I can't feasibly, at least as far as I can see, I can't feasibly turn that that higher value carcass over to the market, given the cost that it takes me to scale up to the efficiencies like the big packers and some of those people have already built into it. Yeah, now, but they are they are efficient at being. All they're doing is then saying, okay, all we really need is a constant supply of the cheapest stuff. That we're going to beat these producers down to where they're making nothing. Well, now there's a little bit of there's. I think there's a little bit of kind of sleight of hand in that whole thing too. Is that, I mean, are we really talking about when you talk when you're discussing what are animals worth? Okay, you've got formula cattle that go into, and those don't necessarily get mandatory price reported. I mean, you could take the sorriest pin of crap animals, put them on the market, and then say, well, here's what these are worth. And then that goes into the pricing of, of all the other cattle. It's, it's a horrible model. And part of the way to get around that is if you can grid market or you can actually get paid for the quality of your animal. But then that gets bastardized a little bit too. You know, it's just, you, like you said, it turns into a commodity game. Explain, so, to the person, explain to the person that doesn't know what grid is because they, that, that would mean. Uh, like grid marketing is when you take the animal and you, you own it, it gets killed, gets hung on the rail in the, in the slaughterhouse. They go and they actually grade the animal and they'll give you a yield grade, a quality grade. You'll get all, you know, all these numbers from, from the actual slaughterhouse and you will get paid accordingly. Like an animal that has a prime carcass gets a, a better premium. Choice is a little less, but it's still better than standard to select. So the better quality of the carcass, you actually get rewarded for raising that animal, having good genetics, having good animal husband. You you get paid for doing a better job of raising sure you that do, animal. But that still that still is at the end of the it's day still commodity. It's still a commodity. Yeah. It's still just a matter of based on yeah. select choice grade prime. Um, yeah. Where does it go? Where do we where do we go from here? Because that's where it is right now. Is this going to stay this I've, way? I, I've said this, and I think there's I think the people that are left in animal or not in animal, but just in agricultural production, 
uh, the people who are left are basically the all-stars. I mean, the people who couldn't hack it and needed to get out have already gotten out or are getting out currently. I don't know that. I mean, it's like I said, it's not that people, you just have these bumpkins that, that are just kind of bouncing along and they got caught a lucky break. And I think those guys are, are getting less and less. I think you have more of a professional business mindset out there. So with that, I think you're going to see a natural evolution to more of a system where people start to demand a little more for their time and energy and effort. Now, how that conversion takes place, I don't know. But I think you'll see more of a leaning towards, hey, we need to figure out how to even this thing out. So we're not just, like you said earlier, working for free. Um, I just, I don't, I don't know how that comes about, but I know with the people that are in the industry and you've also got a generational turnover. When you start getting these younger guys, there's a lot less, um, or gals, younger gals or guys. Yes. Yes. Gals. And, and, uh, <laughs> I should, you're right. There's girls that are farming and ranching too. Um, I just, I can't help but think that you're going to see a, a different mindset or approach to the business. You're going to treat it more like, Hey, this is a business and, I'm going to do X, Y, Z to make this money. Or you, you will see people quit. You'll see people get out. And, and I think that probably the, the drought of 2012 probably short-circuited the natural progression and the turnover within the industry because people made a lot of money. It kept them going. It solved a lot of debt problems. And it kicked that can down the road to now we're in 2018, 2019. So essentially we're going through the cycle that would have naturally happened without the kind of, you know, five, six, seven, eight dollar corn phenomenon. But I think that it also lends itself to the people who were buying that, those high price commodities were actually, you know, they were paying real money for that and they paid $200 for feeders. So it wasn't a question of if they could pay it. It's a question of then they had to pass that on. So I think you move to the model where you know, but before we had $200 feeders, we had 90, 80, $90 feeders. Now we're at almost 150. So we've, we've shifted that paradigm up. We've moved that we've moved the needle. So every time you get these volatile spikes and you don't have enough people to produce the food, you'll keep moving that number up and you'll start, you, you have to reward the people that are still willing to take the risk of going out and producing. Or you have to, but here's the problem. You don't have to do anything. You you all you have to do is pay what the market price is. So yeah, that's right. That's I right. And and said, and there's no uh, you're right. You don't have to, to, but eventually the market will find that person that there is willing to be paid for it. Well, I guess the point is, I agree with you, and I think that we have been price takers, and we still are as a commodity producer. But there's more and more uh, seems to be methodology that can remove you from that, and so that means there's going to be the two systems. There's going to be this huge, huge producer that just can figure out a way to, to do it on uh, uh, extremely small margins. And if mm-hmm. there's anybody else, it's going to have to be at a different level that's doing something that is yeah. not, it's more niche. Yeah. And I'll say this like, and, and, and I'm going to butcher this word, anecdotally. <laughs> anecdotally. <laughs> that one. Yes. Um, part of, I mean, I started a podcast as a, as a side gig. You know, it's not enough that I raise, I mean, that's, that's to the extreme of, I've got, you know, a good sized cow operation, a decent sized farm, uh, you know, only myself and two other employees that, that are drawing paychecks off this thing. And, you know, it's like, Hey, I need another, I need another gig that might potentially one day produce some revenue. I mean, so, so yeah, there's, 
and and who's to who's to say that the side gig doesn't turn into something more than what the farm does and if that's the case then who knows if i'll still be a farmer but those are all stuff that's way down the road but i that will give you a sense of of what guys are willing to do is hey i've got to do something else you know because you you don't know the future i can't hedge all my bets on it's just going to get better i've got to do something for myself on that on that angle too as i told a dairy group two weeks ago the dairy has obviously been in a struggling situation. Yeah, they've got it's it's kind of a nightmare over there. But you know what? Guys. You've been you've been making too much milk for thirty five years. I saw this in the eighties. I was a dairy farm kid. I saw the first dairy buyout where the government gave you money to stop. Uh, so uh, the dairy the dairy supply has been more than the world needed for thirty five years. It has. Uh, mm -hmm. and so I can't change that. And I said, here's what you need to understand, dear producers. You're either going to have to learn how to make it on fourteen dollar milk, or change your business or get out of the business, not being mean, being honest. Hope is not a strategy. And that's really a lesson that has had to been delivered, Jared, to every sector in agriculture throughout the years. At one yeah. point, it was the hog people. At one point, it was the chicken people. At one point, it's the corn, milo, wheat. It's always some sector that needs to be told, you're either probably gonna have to learn how to make it on this, or completely reinvent, change your product, mm -hmm. uh, or, get out of the business because hope is not a strategy. I've got an idea. So when you go around the country and you're speaking at all these people, maybe, maybe you need to, uh, to be serving some McDaniel branded beef hamburgers at all these meals. And then see, there you go. That that's like a whole synergy thing that sure, they talk then, about. Then you're sponsoring me and I'm sponsoring you and we're cross promoting and we're driving around the country in a Madden cruiser, giving out uh, selling cheeseburgers. I like, it. I think we just, we just throw cheeseburgers out the window and say, this is better than the crap you're going to get at McDonald's. And I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't know <laughs> if I can make any money throwing them out the window. All right, here's, we're mostly stuck on beef. We talked to a person named Jared McDaniel. You can find him at Jared. Tell these people how to find you. Uh, on Twitter, it's just at Jared McDaniel, J-E-R-O-D-M-C-D-A-N-I-E-L. Uh, that's also the place where you can kind of get hooked up with the Ag Uncensored podcast. You can find that on iTunes or I don't know. I stuck it out there on every like podcast platform I could find. I don't, I have no idea what, if it's done right, but that's, that's how you can find it. <laughs> just, just search the term Ag Uncensored. There you go. Will you come back and see, well, we barely got through beef and we've got more we can talk about. So you're willing to come back and do it another time? You bet. You bet. This is fun. All right. Thanks. Until then, you have been listening to the Business of Agriculture podcast. I'm Damian Mason, your host. We'll do it again. Thanks. Till then, I'm out.